Testing one, two. Attention mall shoppers, there's breakfast cake at the coffee aisle, breakfast cake on the coffee aisle.
Yeah, I'm going to switch it up on you, Jake. <laughs> All right, good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge. It's good to see everyone on this beautiful spring Sunday morning. As, uh, as many of you know, uh, Alan is uh, away preaching in Clarksdale, Mississippi this weekend, um, so you guys are stuck with me. Um, but Alan and, hey, I heard that, Alan and, uh, and Zach and Jamie Vaughn uh, are, are over in Clarksdale this weekend, so uh, let's remember them, and uh, in, as we pray today and as you pray, uh, remember them, um, and then uh, they'll be coming home this evening, um, so let's do pray for them as they travel. Um, several announcements this morning, so we've got a, a lot kind of coming down the pipe. Um, today, we're going to start our shift um, in, in child care. Um, three- and four-year-olds uh, after the children's moment, three- and four-year-olds will go to the back door um, where they'll, uh, they'll meet teachers, and they'll go downstairs uh, for snacks, refreshment, and if the weather's nice, which it is today, they'll go outside to the field. They'll have a, a time of study out there, have a lesson, um, and then if they finish before we do, which, as you know, that may be very likely, um, they'll go back downstairs to the open area, and that's where your parents, you'll you'll pick them up afterwards, okay? So did I get all that right? Okay. Um, so just recap, three, four-year-olds at the end of the children's moment, uh, meet teachers back there, which are the Dixons today, Natalie and Joey. Um, meet them back there. They'll go downstairs for snacks, for uh, refreshments, and then they'll go out to the field for uh, for a lesson. So we're gonna we're gonna break that up just in an effort to try and you know take some of the the pressure off of just the the teachers we've had downstairs in the nursery because we've had lots of kids down there, which is great. We just want to make sure we you know we're accommodating to everyone. So that'll be kind of the new plan moving forward. In the event of rain or bad weather, they'll stay downstairs, you know, in that open area, um, you know, for their for their lesson time. All right. Uh, thank you to everybody who helped out with the Easter event last weekend. Just got a lot of encouragement uh, from everyone who attended there. That was just a, a wonderful time for us to get together and fellowship. Thank you especially for the Groves uh, for hosting that um, and for Kelly and Sarah and all the others who just kind of helped pull that off. Uh, that, that was just a wonderful time of fellowship and, uh, and gathering together. So thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for, for that wonderful event. Uh, tonight, 6.30, Women's Bible Study will meet here at the church building. Um, ladies, y'all be discussing Chapter 5 um, in the is Biblical Womanhood 101. Is that right? I think 201. 201. Right. Soft, sophomore class. <laughs> Uh, chapter five is the chapter on purity. That's uh, that's going to be it. Even if you haven't read the the chapter, don't have the book. Certainly, if you would like to come, come. That'll be uh, a wonderful time of encouragement, uh, strengthening uh, one another in prayer. Uh, that'll be tonight at six thirty here at the church building. Um, April 25th, that'll be next Sunday. Lots going to happen next Sunday. Um, we're going to have a deacons meeting early in the morning, 7.30. That only affects two of us that are in here right now, but I'm saying that so we remember to remind the other two that it affects. Um, so the following the service, we're going to have a potluck lunch, um, and then we're going to have a, uh, a, a baby shower for Heather. I get that right this week. I botched that last week. Um, so that is for Heather. 
Heather Scholler. We're going to have a baby shower for Heather. Um, that'll be following the service. Next Sunday also we'll start our series on marriage. That'll be a four-week series on marriage uh, that we hope will be encouraging to everyone, young, old alike, whether or not you are married or not. We hope that that'll be a great encouragement for, for the whole church uh, at large. So that'll be next Sunday. Uh, a reminder as well, this went up on uh, uh, on our Realm app. May 4th is the abortion bill rally that's going to be in Columbia at 10 a.m. Just want to put a reminder out there. Anyone who's able to attend that be there, uh, just a reminder. Any other, anything else related to that for you guys that had, po- had posted that? Okay. If anybody's interested in that, has the ability to go and would like to, see Antoine afterwards for, for more details on the, the where and when or when that carpool is going to happen. All right, uh, May 15th, I told you there's a lot of them. <laughs> May 15th um, is going to be our barbecue and uh, and yard sale here at the church. Uh, if you remember weeks ago, we adopted a room through the uh, Miracle Hill ministry, particularly through the, the Women's Homeless Ministry. We adopted a, a new room uh, that will provide um, a safe place for women who are homeless, who are recovering uh, addicts, who, um, who need a safe place to go and also have an opportunity for Christian and discipleship and even to to uh, have the gospel shared to them uh, we adopted uh, a room there and in order to to just help pay for that we, you know, we said as a church you know what we're going to pull this out of savings which we can but we want to put that money back into savings and in order to do that we said well, we're going to we're going to do a barbecue several of the men in the church have said hey you know love to barbecue we're going to we're going to barbecue stuff and we'll sell plates out here uh, on, a, on a Sunday. So we're going to do that May 15th. We're also going to do a yard sale. So if you have anything in your house that, you know, could go towards a yard sale, clothes, furniture, you know, a yacht, um, you know, it, yeah, you name it, anything big or small. Jamie will find a place for a yacht, I'm sure. If you have one, you want to sell it. <laughs> so, uh, but if you have anything that you would like to donate for the yard sale, um, you know, bring it. See, uh, see Jamie, talk to Jamie about that. Um, or anyone else really on the uh, on the missions team. Um, so, but if you have boxes or things you want to bring, you're welcome to bring them here to the church. We'll find a place for them. Um, you can just label them with what's in them. Uh, but all the money that's brought in from that on May 15th, that's going to go back into savings, which will recruit recoup the money that we uh, that we put towards. Um, adopting this room through Miracle Hill Ministry. Okay, so again, that's going to be May 15th. We'll have more details as we get closer, but just go ahead and mark your calendars for that. Um, Marriage series starts on the 25th. I think that's it. So last thing, just to encourage you, look around, see who's not here. Um, you know, whether you know why they're here or not, uh, note who's not here, reach out to them this week. Send them a text, say, hey, we missed you. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Uh, make an effort to encourage others in the body who are absent uh, today. All right. Well, our call to worship this morning comes from the book of John. John chapter 4, verse 14. This is Jesus at the well with the woman who's at the well. And he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water of of that well, will thirst again. But I will give, uh, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we gather this morning on this beautiful spring day. See your display of your glory and creation 
as spring flowers bloom, shoots come out of the ground of new life. Father, may it remind us one of the temporal promises that this life offers us. May it remind us of the eternal life that we have in Christ only through the shed blood of Jesus. And the water that He offers us is eternal life. Is a wellspring that is meant to overflow. So, Father, may we be reminded of the great gift of the gospel that we're given this morning. Father, would you meet with us as we offer our praise to you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
the kids come down front. Come on down, sit down, spread out. Morning, Calvin. It's good to see everybody this morning. How's everybody doing? All right. Well, we've been talking about, I'm going to quiz you, okay? I'm going to quiz you. We've been talking about which, which person in the Trinity lately. Anybody remember? I know, it's been a week. Lots happened, right? We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. Remember? Talking about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit was promised from the Old Testament, okay? And that God would one day pour out His Spirit on all of mankind, okay? This was promised in the Old Testament, okay? And last week, we kind of left off wondering, well, how's that going to happen? How's that going to happen? And we get now to the part where we talk about Jesus and Jesus and His followers and the Spirit on them, okay? So Jesus comes onto the scene in the New Testament and Jesus, at one point early in Jesus' ministry, he sits down in the synagogue, okay, which is kind of like that's, that would have been the Jews' church at the time, okay? Sits down in the, in, the, uh, in the synagogue in the temple, and he's asked to read from the Old Testament, okay? And he picks up the book of Isaiah, and he reads from Isaiah 61, okay? And in Isaiah 61, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah, the one who would come and save God's people from their sins, that he would be filled with the Spirit. Now, Jesus could have picked anything from the Old Testament to read, but he picked that passage. And when he read it, do you know what he said? He said, today, this, this passage is fulfilled in your midst. Whoa, that's pretty big, isn't it? He was saying that he was the Spirit-filled Messiah, okay? And that his whole ministry through all the Gospels, everything that he did was empowered by the Spirit, you know, Later, Peter speaks in Acts, and he says, and he says that Jesus' ministry, that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So everything that, God, that Jesus did in his ministry was done through the power of the Spirit, okay? So now you think, all right, well, Jesus is just this great model for us to follow about what it means to be, you know, Spirit-filled, Okay. A little later in his ministry, uh, Jesus is sitting with the with with his apostles. Okay, this was like right in the upper room, just before Jesus was crucified. And you know what he told him? He said, "I'm going. I'm going to go away from you, and where I'm going, you can't follow. And it's good that I go away." And the the the, the, the apostles, the the disciples, they were just they were confused. They loved Jesus. I mean, here he's the Messiah. He's the one who's supposed to save the people, and he's leaving. They needed him, didn't they? They needed him, absolutely, right? Now, let me ask you this. Why, was it, why do you think it was good that Jesus left? Anybody? Why? He had to go see the Father. That's right. He had to go back to the Father. Okay, anybody else? It's a hard question. You know, he was going to die on the cross. He was going to save everyone from their sins. But he was, in the, he was in the grave. Right, right. He was in the tomb. Yeah, you guys are picking up on it. Okay. Do you know what he told the disciples? He said, if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come. He said, where I'm going, when I go, when I die on the cross, okay, and I defeat death, 
right, and I'm raised from the dead, and I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be with you. Okay? He promised them that the Holy Spirit that dwells with them right, right then, which was, which was himself, his very spirit, I'm going to send that spirit to be in you. That's good news, isn't it? That's really good news. So then Jesus dies on the cross, okay? He's buried, he's raised from the dead, Easter, right? Okay, we celebrated this, all right? And then the apostles and all the disciples, those who are followers of Christ, okay? They're waiting for what the Father had promised, okay? So now we're into Acts, and they're waiting in the upper room. They're waiting for, for what the Father had promised, for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, okay? And, the, and this happens. And do you know what happens when, the, when God pours the Holy Spirit out on this group of people? They begin to proclaim the wonders of what Jesus has done. And you know what? They're doing it in languages they've never spoken before. How many of you know a different language? Pig Latin doesn't count. Irish? Okay, some Spanish. Okay, all right. Okay, how many of you can speak Swahili? Any, any Swahili speakers? Nope. Russian? Chinese? Okay, so, so here, here's the thing. So he, here's the thing. Listen, listen quick, okay? On that day, okay, God made a special display of the power of the Spirit, okay? It was a special display of the power of the Spirit that he would pour out his Spirit on all these people, and they would testify, they would bear witness to the glories of Christ and his saving power. You know, Peter Peter explains what happened because people are standing around going, what is going on here? Okay, that would be quite a sight. If you were in that room, you're going, what is going on? If everybody starts proclaiming the wonders of who Jesus is and what he's done, and they're doing it in different languages, and people are, are understanding it, okay? And so Peter says this, and he quotes from Joel from the Old Testament, and he says, this is what the prophet Joel said, in that day... When the Messiah comes, when, when all these things come to fulfillment, he says, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and they will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions, even on every male servant and female servant. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Okay, so finally that day had come. Okay, and God had poured out his spirit right there, and that was the display of, of what God would do. Okay, now there's one more important thing. Okay, do you know what Jesus told his disciples before he left? He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so do you, do you hear what Jesus says? He tells the disciples, you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses. Okay, and this is going to happen when? 2020? 2021? No. When the Holy Spirit is poured out. Okay? So this is important. One of the key things that the Holy Spirit does in people have faith in Christ is that he gives them power to tell others about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Do you see that? That we need the, Spirit, the, we need the Spirit's power in order to, to do this. Okay? So that's... As, we, as we're talking about this, the Holy Spirit, that's one of the big functions of the Holy Spirit is that he empowers us to testify to what Jesus has done and to tell others about the gospel. Okay, and that, that's encouraging. That's good news. And we have the Spirit of Jesus with, you, with us. He said, I will be with you. 
even until the end of the age. All right, I know that's a lot. I know that's a lot there. We're talking about all that the, the, the Holy Spirit does from, from the beginning of the Bible all the way through to the end. All right, well, next week we'll talk about the Holy Spirit and, and the gift of new life that he gives us in Jesus, okay? All right, well, I'm going to pray for us, and when I dismiss, everybody who's four, three and four, who's three and four? Raise your hand. There you go, four. There you go. Okay, well, if you're age three and four, you're going to go back to that door, and you're going to meet Miss Natalie and Mr. Joey, okay? And you, and you two guys, too, okay. Y'all are going to be the assistant helpers. There you go, okay. You keep your parents in line, right? Okay, let me pray for us. You guys are going to go meet them back there. You're going to go have snacks, and you're going to go have a lesson on your own. Okay, that's exciting. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, might give us new life through him. <coughs> thank you for the gift of the Spirit. And Father, the testimony of the Spirit that's written for us in Scripture that we can read, that we can hear about, and that be, we can be reminded of the power that's given to us through Christ, Father. Not power to do phenomenal things like flying or just any of these other things that we see on TV, Father, but the wondrous power to bear witness to the saving grace of Jesus to others, Father, that they too might come to know you through faith in Christ, Father. What a wonderful gift this is. Father, bless these young ears, Father. May they have ears to hear, eyes to see the gospel. May they love Jesus, Father. May they love people. May they see their need for Christ. And may they have faith in him, Lord. And would you keep them? It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. Thank you.
Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the glorious gift of Christ. And as we turn our eyes upon you this morning to look full at you for a brief period of time, we do uh, realize what a great gift that was to us as we celebrated Easter just a couple of weeks ago and celebrated the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in obedience to the Father. He was willing to come down and live a perfect, sinless, sacrificial life for us. And we are humbled by that. And as Austin told the kids this morning, the gift of the Holy Spirit that we have dwelling within us so that we might go and share this glorious news of your gospel to those around us here in our own community and in the world at large. God, with great gifting comes great responsibility. And we take that very seriously here. Our hearts are encouraged by the opportunities we have to minister and and share your gospel here in our community. We think of the women's shelter and the opportunities there, the abortion outreach, uh, the just the countless opportunities that we've come across there, the people whose lives have been touched because of uh, our men and women here who are willing to go and speak up for the unborn and for your gospel. And God, I pray that you would bless those efforts. Many things are happening right now. It's a critical time in our nation's history, and I just ask that you would bless those efforts, uh, protect these children, protect these lives that you have created. God, I ask that you would give us boldness within our communities, at our jobs, that we would speak up for you when we ought to speak up, and that your glory would be spread here in Greenville, South Carolina, but also around the world. We think of our missionaries who have gone out from churches like this all around the country to spend their lives in a foreign land that you have called them to, that you have given them the ability to go and spread your word to And God, many of them have had to come home because of virus reasons and other issues. And so we ask that you would encourage their hearts, meet needs, help them to come up with new ways to be able to uh, minister here while while you have them here. But also, God, I pray that you would open the doors for them to be able to return to where their hearts are, where you have placed them and planted them so that they might effectively uh, reach out to people who have never heard the truth that we find here in your word this morning. And as Austin preaches this morning, I just pray that our own hearts would be stirred, that we might be obedient, that it would find good, soft soil in our hearts. May you break our own hearts that often become hardened to your truth. Maybe we get callous or careless or just busy. And I just ask this morning as we sit here under your word that our own hearts, our own eyes would be open to the truth of your word so that you might speak to us. Bless Alan as he preaches this morning away from us. I just ask that you would use him in a special way there in Mississippi and that you would give them safety as they travel back tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to Second Peter, chapter one. 
2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And I'll read the, read the full text for us. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Let's pray. Father God, as we open your word in this, this rich section, written by Peter, inspired by your Holy Spirit. Father, may it foster growth in us. Would you bring clarity to our minds about what it means to grow in faith? And our responsibility to one another to remind each other of the gospel that we might grow. Take your word, Father. Apply it to our hearts where we need it most. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The last several weeks, we've sort of been on this spur trail, if you will, um, uh, from where we normally are, re- you know, preaching through a book of the Bible. And Next week, we'll start our, our series on marriage, and then, Lord willing, following that, we'll be back in a, another book for a while. Um, so, But a, as we've been talking the last several weeks more about kind of topical things, um, the, role, the Christian's role in government, faith in the midst of suffering, Christian community fellowship, which was last week, um, I, I wanted to kind of pull some of these themes together, um, eternity, suffering, community, pull those things together. As we look at what it means to grow in our faith, um, and I, you, you can go a lot of places in Scripture. You can go to Paul's writings, almost any of them, you know, to the Romans, to the Ephesians. Um, you, know, you can go to the Gospels. You can go all over the place, even in the Old Testament. Um, you know, and you'll find lots and lots of texts that you can examine about growth. But I wanted to come to Peter, and specifically this second letter. Remember Peter's first letter. 
um, wrote to those uh, those who were dispersed, believers who were dispersed, really combating pressure from outside the church. Okay, and his second letter now he's writing to combat false teachers rising up within the church. So it's a different context. So, but he's writing, and in his what's interesting is in this opening exhortation, the second letter, very small letter or short letter. His opening exhortation is that these believers would grow in the exercise of their faith. And so Peter here, he views this growth, one, is essential. It's, it's not optional. And it's essential in order to keep from being carried away by error. That's the way he closes the letter, by the way. He says at the very end of the letter, he says, Knowing all these things, he has some very strong language to talk, to, to use for false teachers, talk, calling them a stain and a blemish, that the black darkness is reserved for them. I mean, this is not bedtime reading, right? You know, I mean, this is very dark, very strong language for false teachers, okay? Um, and he closes out, he says, knowing all of these things, your responsibility as believers, the danger um, of being carried away, he says, remember all these things. And be on guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own fatness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So his intent is that growth is essential. It's essential to keep the Christian from being carried away, or as Paul uses the phrase, being you know, drifting away. It's essential for, for that very purpose. But also in order to persevere to the end. Now we're going to look at this here shortly, but I just want to draw attention to this that Paul in verses 10 and 11 gives just a fantastic summary of what sanctification looks like, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, growing in faith. And he says that for in this way, and like I said, we'll, we'll get to this, but he says, in this way, or he says, if these qualities of yours, if growth is happening in your life as a Christian, if they're yours and they're increasing, this is the way in which entrance into the eternal kingdom will be supplied to you. Okay, so very, very clear. How does the Christian get to heaven? Okay, not just get the Jesus stamp of justification, but sanctification is the process of growing in holiness, growing more like Christ. Okay, that process of growing is essential, according to Peter, in order to get you there. Okay? But not only that, notice also that Peter expects growth to happen in the face of opposition. And I think this is very timely for us in a lot of the things that we have talked about. You know, in the face of just the shifts and changes in our Western culture and how it's in a sense annealing Christianity. Not that Christianity needed to be annealed, but for us it is it is essentially creating clearer distinctions about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to pretend to follow Jesus than it had in the past, say, maybe 100 years. Okay, we talked about this weeks ago. Um, but Peter here expects that growth should happen in the face of opposition to the church. And I think that's very timely and very helpful for us and very encouraging Okay, so th those are the reasons why I wanted to come. Why to come here? Why come here to talk about Christian growth? Those those areas. Okay, but one of the key questions, key question I want to ask this morning: How does growth happen for the Christian? How does it happen, and what role do we play in fostering growth in one another? 
Okay, we're going to bring this, this idea of community and fellowship, you know, zero in on this one aspect of Christian growth. Okay, what, what Alan preached on last week, community and fellowship and its necessity, we're going to zero in on this aspect of Christian growth. Okay, and m- more specifically, what kind of pattern of Christian growth has existed down through the ages rather than a popular fad? Okay, some popular fad in the modern era that can, that can look like Christian growth but easily cause us to slip away. Okay, and, and this has actually been the pattern for the church for centuries. You know, you get persecution, you know, you get kind of the, the clarification of boundaries. The church, you know, strengthens, grows, and then it gets comfortable. And Christian growth looks different than what it's really supposed to. It's replaced with something other than genuine growth. I'm not going to spoil it for you. I want you to hang on to the end. So I'm not going to tell you all that is. But I'll tell you this. This is Christianity 101. We're going to get to the end and you're going to go, well, that's so simple. And I'm going to say, yes, but it is so hard to do diligently and to do regularly, which is why Peter says, do it diligently. You have to practice it. I'm getting ahead of myself, okay? So here's the three, here's, Peter's exhortation in three parts. It's 15 verses. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of, sk- I don't want to skim over it. We're not going to get real, real deep in it. Okay, there's a lot of questions that could be asked here. Um, but I, I want to just plow through these and cover a more, you know, broad spectrum. Um, you know, so we're going to be probably at the 10,000 foot level rather than exactly straight on the ground. But there are some key things I'm going to hit pretty hard. Okay, so three parts to Peter's exhortation. One is the Christian's identity who we are in Christ. Um, the second is that identity applied or that identity lived out. And as, as we look at that identity lived out, um, we'll see that wonderful statement of, uh, for, uh, of, from Peter from verses 10 and 11 just as sanctification in a nutshell. All right? And then the third part is reminding one another. Okay? So there's, our, there's kind of our outline. The Christian's identity, that identity applied, that identity lived out. And then reminding one another. Okay? So the Christian's identity, this is where Paul, this is where Peter starts in verses one through four. And the first key mark of that is that the Christian is marked by receiving faith through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see what Peter writes? And he says, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Of, of the apostles, same kind of faith that we've received, you've received that too. It's by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice, first off, that is a gift. He doesn't come in and say, hey, you figured this thing out, good for you. You've got this special knowledge, you've got this special kind of tactic, this special little cool thing you got going on. No, 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 he, he, he takes and gives that glory straight to God. He says, you've received the gift You've received faith. You've received that same gift of faith that we've received. Praise the Lord for that. Right? That's a mark of grace. That is a mark of grace that I can't imagine was meant to humble, humble his initial audiences, should humble any Christian who thinks of that, reads anything from Scripture and gets any hint of their own salvation. It should bring in them a deep humbleness. Because they're marked by grace. And notice too, I mean, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I just want to point out, Peter says that gift that you've received is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
God and Savior are modifiers that modify the word Jesus Christ. It's just one other further point to the deity of Christ. And when we preached through John, that was one of our key themes, was just point to the deity of Christ as we go through and its implications. Here's one other place in Scripture. I know, is Jesus the Son? Of, is Jesus God himself? Yes, indeed, he is. You see all this also in that pattern, because a pattern through this letter, and particularly even in just these 15 verses, is about the true knowledge. He says the true knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Later, as he moves through, he drops God, and he, it is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. Now, Peter would never divide the, 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 would, would never divide the quality and value of God being three in one. But his emphasis here is, is Christ, is that Christ receives the glory to the honor of the Father. So the Christian is marked first and foremost in his identity, through the grace given to, to him in faith. And that faith is given so that we may know God. He said, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? Through the true knowledge, knowledge as he says later. Now, this is a pattern throughout the Old Testament as the, or, uh, throughout the New Testament as the, as the writers are writing to the early churches. Paul to the Ephesians says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance in the church, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward those who believe. He says, I pray that you would know these things. He writes later, in that same letter, he says, he says that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints was the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's writing that to Christians. Right? That's not, I pray that you would come to know Jesus. That's that I pray that you would grow in your knowing of him. That would be an ongoing work that God is doing in you and that you're participating in. That you would know God. What's, the, what's one of the fundamental stains on the Jews in the Old Testament? God says time and time again, you did not know me. Even though I gave you my law, you did not know me. And the promise of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would come, the Messiah would come. I will give them a new heart. They shall not teach everyone his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. Jeremiah 31. Hebrews 8 brings this and says, This is what's happened in the new covenant. That we would know God through Christ but also that we would share in his holiness, right? He said that God's divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That we would share in his holiness. Hebrews 12.10 says that God disciplines us for our good so that we would share in his holiness. Right? Scripture says, be holy for God is holy. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness, and holiness of truth. 
right? That this would be essentially the outward expression of, an, of the inward change of the gospel that's actually happened in, in your heart. This is, how, this is how Peter can write to them and say, you've, you've received the same faith as ours. Not because you wrote it in the back of your Bible or because you made some profession of Christ when you were 12, but because there's actually fruit coming out of your life that's evidence of a change of heart. That we would share in his holiness. And also that we would have his precious and magnificent promises. It says, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Right? The promises of the Holy Spirit when I talked with the children about. A changed heart, new affections. Suffering for the sake of his glory and our joy. Not that we're masochists and we say we want to go, you know, go out and find somebody to beat me every single day. But that as Christ is, is, is shown to be more and more of our treasure, he becomes more and more of our greatest treasure, and the world pushes against that, that Christ becomes more of, a present, uh, more of our treasure in a present reality. That becomes a real thing that happens. We talked about that a few weeks ago with the, uh, w- with the letter to the Hebrews. Having a future unshakable kingdom. All of these promises that are given to us are ours through our identity, being children of God through the gift of faith. And all of this God did by his own glory and his excellence. His own glory and his own excellence. His own excellence being all of the virtues that that make God who he is. we think of that the glory is an excellent i think peter has in mind here grace and mercy as hallmarks of his glory and his excellence right remember in exodus moses says lord show me your glory show me god what makes you glorious i'm struggling here i need some help you give me this rebellious people show me what makes you glorious and what, is, what does he say? What does the sovereign God of the universe who created all things, what, is, what does he say? What does he do? He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Moses, you want to know what makes me glorious? Is my sovereign display of grace and mercy upon a world that does not deserve it. That's what makes him glorious and what greater display do we have of that than the cross of Christ whereby the very son of God laid down his life to take away our sins that we might know him away with this idea that God is some capricious being how can you say that when he gave his own son did this by his own glory and his own excellence. And so God has called you through the precious gift of faith to know him. And that this wouldn't just be a one-time stamp of Jesus' approval and you go live your life, but that this would be an ongoing, ever-present exercise. And that this grace given to you, that's the ability to know him, that's the source of a life that honors him. 
That's the transition from identity and who you are in Christ and living out that identity. That's the difference between legalism and genuine Christian faith. That's the difference between looking at holiness and looking at righteousness, looking at moral excellence, and saying, okay, I'm going to pursue this in order that God may approve me. From looking at God because of what he's done for you in Christ and pursuing him and holiness being a result. Now, we can talk all day about the distinctions of that, but I'll tell you this. If you're a Christian, you know the difference in the quality of person when you meet them. This person knows God and is following them, and and righteousness and holiness is coming out of that. And they're not selfish about it. And then the person who is self-righteous, who, says, who claims to know God but knows more about themselves and their own efforts than about God and His grace. So the Christian's identity is essential as the grounds for living that identity out. And so going to that identity, being reminded, I mean, this is what, Pe- this is what Peter does He's writing to these Christians who are at risk of drifting away, of being carried away by false teachers, and he reminds them of their identity. Remember who you are in Jesus. Remember of the grace and the grandeur and the glory that God has given you of this gift to be called his children. And then he says in verse 5, Now for this very reason, for the very reason of the gift of faith, to be able to know him, to have his promises, to share in his holiness. Because of that gift. Now walk. Walk Christian. Apply that gift. See growth begins when our, uh, with our identity. But it doesn't just stay with our identity. We've got to put feet to it. It must be applied. It has to be lived out. And that's where, that's where Peter goes next. He talks about these virtues that we're to pursue. Now, I want to I want to just I want to hit on every single one of these. I think it's oftentimes easy to look at that list and go, oh, well, I know what that is. You know, I know what moral excellence is. I know what holiness is. I know what, you know, all of these things. But I want to actually just talk about these because I think it's helpful for us. I think sometimes we gloss over them as just Christian terms or moral terms to say these things are good. But I think it's helpful for us to actually think about what they mean. So I'm going to just briefly hit every single one if you're taking notes you know i definitely do that but i'm going to fire through these pretty quick so if you want you know my notes i can send them to you you know later but i'd love for you just to listen okay um listen to each one of these as we go through it as a footnote to them as you read them it's easy to look at that and go okay well these are sort of a an a plus b equals c we get this linear kind of thinking and go okay well i've got to do this one first and then this one and this one because that's the way it's written but really and truly the way it's written is that they're they're not something that you should be pers- that should be pursued in a sequence, you know. Like you've got to pursue moral excellence before you can pursue love, because love comes at the end. Rather that they come together, they're a fruit basket set, you know, in a, in a sense. So you're pursuing them all together, and that also they're not a legal code. Okay, well I've got to check these boxes, but they're desires, they're features of a transformed heart. Okay, so those are those those footnotes. So let's walk through each one of these. Okay, faith. 
He says, now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith. Faith is that first virtue that has to be fostered. That's the root of the Christian life. It's the gift that's given that makes all the other virtues possible. And it's a faith that trusts even when you don't understand versus a faith that doesn't trust. Remember the man who met Jesus and his son was demon-possessed? And he says, your, 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 apostles have, your disciples have tried to cast him out, but they can't. And he, and he says, and he says, I do believe, help my unbelief. The man says, I have faith and I trust you, but I don't understand. But I trust you even when I don't understand. There's a difference between that and a faith that goes, I don't understand and I don't trust you. So I'm not going to be obedient. I'm not going to follow. Faith that we're called to is a faith that trusts. It's the root of the Christian life. What about moral excellence? That's the next one. He says, in your faith, supply moral excellence. That's moral virtue, moral energy. In, in history, in classical sense, the word was used to describe God-given powers, small, small g, think, you know, mythology. God-given powers that were given to perform heroic deeds. Okay, Aristotle saw this as sort of a right behavior that exists between two extremes in any given situation. The Stoics would connect this word with, with, uh, with nature, living in harmony with nature. You see that, that, that same thread um, in, in a lot of humanist movements today. In its base meaning, moral excellence, it means the quality by which one stands out as being excellent. So what does that mean for Christians? For Christians, to con- the, the conduct of life that honors God as supremely glorious, honors those made in his image and respects and cares for that which he created for his glory, namely all of creation. Okay, do you see what the, you see what the foundation of that is? It's God. Right, That God is the ground of moral virtue and faith in him is the source of living in it. I'll say that again. That God is the ground of moral virtue and faith in him is the source of living in it. He says, supply moral excellence. Pursue, pursue conduct that honors God and all that he has created. You think about that, that requires knowing who he is well and growing in that knowledge and considering what that means about how you interact with all the things that he's created. Right, whether you're a hunter and you're hunting, you know, whether you're a bookkeeper and you're dealing with people's money when nobody's looking, whether you're out on the street and it's a sunny day and there's, you know, people parading by in less clothes that draws your attention, do you think about these people creating the image of God in a way that honors God? You, you do that before you get into those situations, right? That's not the time to suddenly go, hmm, I'm going to have a moral change of heart. Those things are considered beforehand, but they're fueled and they're framed by a faith and a knowledge and understanding of God that is based in the grace given to you in the gospel. Supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge in your moral excellence, knowledge, always learning, always a student of God's masterpiece that results in wisdom and praise to God. 
Right? There's virtue in learning new things. If I'm not mistaken, all of the, the first educational centers in the United States were Christian-based. They were based out of the, the Christian worldview of growing in our knowledge of the world around us with a biblical framework. My, have we moved far from that, have we not? But that's a good thing to grow in our knowledge of the world around us. I love to, I, I, I love to watch like National Geographic late at night or um, you know, Wild China, well, you know, a lot of these, these shows, and I'm just fascinated by the creatures that are there and the things that, you know, that, that are presented. Like, I do that with a biblical framework, right? You know, some of the explanations, I'm like, okay, that's your theory, but I see the way God has created these things. You know, like these little worms that live in caves and they drop these little silk sort of rope things. Okay, I watched this like three weeks ago, so this is just coming to my head. Bear with me, you know. But it's awesome, these little worm things that live up in the tops of these caves, you know, and they drop these little things and they glow in the dark. They glow and they, they like, they're like blinking lights that it's just this phenomenal light show. And they, in doing so, they attract flying insects and things, you know, that move around at night, and they get caught in these little webs. And the worms just go down and absorb them, you know, basically. I'm like, wow, that's awesome. How amazing is it that God displays his glory through these little bugs? I know that's not the right term for them, you know, but bear with me. I'm shooting from the hip on this one. I didn't have it in my notes. But that's just one thing, you know, just growing in our knowledge of things. Sometimes it's useless information, but it, it turns around and praises God for it. Sometimes it's wonderful things that are very, very useful as we interact with other people. Knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. That's a self-government. Greek lexicon, one of the ones that I use, gave this as a as a as a synonym uh, holding himself in holding himself in governing when i was a kid one of my best friends lived up a mountain from me his name was buck his name still is buck um yes uh but he had a golf cart I mean, we were kids you know 10 12 or so he had a golf cart i was like oh he's got basically like a car and he would ride his golf cart down to come see me, and, you know, we'd hang out, and we'd drive his golf cart back up. I mean, we were like the stuff because we had this golf cart. But we always lamented the fact that this golf cart had a governor on it. If you know anything about automobiles at all, you know what a governor does. Keeps you from going too fast. And we'd strategize how do we pull the governor off of this thing. You know, how we, man, this thing could go 30 miles an hour if we pull that governor off. We didn't know, thankfully, we didn't tinker with it because we probably would have hurt ourselves, you know. But it limited the speed. And it was there for good reason, because we'd hurt ourselves, right? I look back on it saying, thank you, Lord, for, you know, getting us more interested in playing in the creek and stuff than trying to tinker with that golf cart. But it was a governor. It, it created self-control for the golf cart. It kept the speed down. Peter says, exercise self-control. Governing sinful impulses. I think it's interesting. He says, he says earlier, he says, You've been given this identity having escaped from the corruption that is in the world by lust. But you're not out of it yet. You still have to do battle with the flesh. You still have to do battle with Satan. You still have to do battle with a fallen world because Christ hasn't returned yet. 
So do battle by being diligent in your application of your identity. Exercise self-control, governing sinful impulses and also governing, uh, governing personality traits or social practices that are not fit for the moment. I think of Paul writing to, uh, writing to the Romans, talking about not causing another brother to stumble because you've eaten from sacrificed meat. Right? There are practices and there are things that exist in every culture that are not necessarily sinful, but they are not edifying. And so Paul says, or Peter says, consider these things. Exercise self-control for the good of those around you. And in your self-control, perseverance. Perseverance, that's enduring when it costs. Think of a long-distance runner, right? Long-distance runner has the end in mind. Doesn't start off with a sprint, you know? You start off a little bit slower because you got to get to the end. If you go too fast, you burn off all your energy, you pass out, you die. You know, very morbid. Yes, you get the idea, right? You, you, it's an endurance. We were in Texas once with my family. We were on a family vacation. So no, my dad was on a business trip, and he was, he was, gathering, uh, he was gathering inventory for, for his work. We were hauling a 16-foot double-axle car hauler, basically, and we were putting old appliances in it. So no, behind a minivan, four-cylinder. I was 15, no, I, was, I was 16, and I mean, I'm, we're on this, we're going through Texas, and there's not, there's not much there, you know, and we're going through Texas, and I'm just like, why can't we go faster? Why can't we go faster? I'm sitting in the back seat just very frustrated because we're not where we're supposed to be, you know, I'm a teenager, I don't want to be on this trip, you know, I look back on it and say, it was great, you know, I loved it at the time, I did not, okay, but we were on this trip, and dad finally gives me the opportunity to drive, I'm like, oh yeah, it's on. You know, because there are people passing us that should not be passing us, you know, horses and buggies, you know, and I'm like, okay, we're going to go faster. So I get in and I floor that thing. I mean, I'm moving. I'm like, now we're doing the speed limit. You know, I'm not, I'm not going too fast, you know, but we're tithing the speed limit, you know, 10% over. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we're doing great. And my dad, you know, he's patiently sits there for about 10 minutes. And then he says, Austin, I'm going to teach you something. I'm going, oh, great. I always hate it when that happens. Uh, no. Because I know I'm about to get hit some, with something I'm going to remember. And I did remember it. See, because I'm telling you. He says, if you don't keep the RPMs below 3,000, we won't make it to the next gas station. Oh, slow down so you make it. <laughs> that was the point. I learned a very important lesson on that trip amongst many others. Persevere, Austin. The, the goal is Perseverance. It's not a sprint. The Christian life is perseverance. Living with the end in mind. It also implies that it will be difficult and that perseverance must be practiced. It must be applied. It doesn't just come naturally. Okay, well, I've got my Jesus stamp. I come to church. Therefore, I will persevere. Right? He says, no, do this. Apply this. Be diligent in it persevere have the end in mind and run accordingly is what peter says and in your perseverance godliness godliness a reverence towards god that governs all aspects of life right that's back to our identity that, that, that we must have a high view of god and his grace and what he's given to us and his mercy and that therefore leads to a life of revering him 
If you have a low view of God or the view that God thinks much of you and that you're the center of his universe, godliness is going to take a back seat. Apply godliness, a reverence towards God that governs all aspects of life. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness, a warmth and affection towards all who are in the family of faith. And that's, those are people who look very different from us, from you. But you're going to get to heaven, you might stand next to somebody who you know, was a Christian in the dark ages. I don't know exactly how that conversation is going to go out, because I don't speak old English you know, at all, but I'm sure that we're going to talk for a long time about the shed blood of Jesus, and we're going to have all things in common. Even though I couldn't tell him how to wield a sword, you know, or do all the things that happened in that time, and he's not going to understand cars. But we are going to understand Christ. Warmth and affection towards all who are in the family of faith. That's a, for, for where we are now, think of family affection. I know not everybody grew up in a, in a, in a, in a warm, inviting family where there was peace and there was love. But that's what we're called to as the Christian church. That there would be comfort, that there would be emotional, physical, and spiritual safety. Right? There's a sign on the front door of of a church that should read, no relational fig leaves necessary. No, No hiding of shame here. That we would be able to let our guard down with one another because people have your best interest in mind and you have theirs. Right? It's interesting, this phrase... The New Testament has a very restrictive use of this phrase, brotherly kindness. It's used specifically within those of the community of faith. It's very interesting. It's very popular now, at least among guys. I don't know about ladies, but among guys, that we call each other brother. Hey, brother, how's it going? Yo, brother, how's it going? You know, I'm, 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 I'm hesitant with it. I hear it and I receive it, but I, I don't use that term you know, with, with, with others. And... This is just a, you know, this is a social thing. You know, it's a, it's a fad. But in the scriptures, brotherly kindness is specifically with, with the mind of those who are within the community of faith. Now, that doesn't mean that we're cold towards people who are outside the community of faith. Far from it. That there should be warmth and affection towards those who are lost phenomenally. Because when we were still sinners, Christ loved us. Right, that's the pattern, that's what we get to. Now we're going to get to love here in a second. But there should be warmth and affection towards those who are lost with the intent that they come to faith. And therefore you can be closer to them. That that warmth and affection would grow. This is a different, from an affection, uh, different from an affection towards those who are within the church. It's the difference in shared worldview and shared purpose and intent of life. You can only walk so close to someone and open yourself up to, uh, only open yourself up so much to someone who doesn't share your worldview because you're walking different directions. Right? You don't necessarily have the same idea of what, it, of what goodness means. Right? That's why the bumper sticker that says, Be kind. I love it. Be more specific. Right? Because niceness to someone doesn't save them from getting smashed by a truck when they're wandering out in the road and they're blind. 
But if we don't have a shared view of what it means to be good, then we're not going to pursue what is good for us. But within the church, we have that because of our shared identity. Therefore, brotherly kindness is a rich warmth and affection towards one another where we can be honest with one another. We can speak the truth in love to one another. And that's not just saying, bless your heart. There's a genuine come alongside of one another in, terms of, in, terms, in times of darkness, when admonishment's needed, when we need encouragement. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Love, selfless attitude that leads to, to sacrificing for the good of others. And that good being chiefly an eternal one. In, in Peter's first letter, he wrote and he said, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That's interesting. Peter wasn't at all saying that is, it, you know, if you love other people, that's going to get you into heaven. At all. James uses the same term in James 5.8 and he said, he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways covers a multitude of sins. See, both of them have in mind the eternal destiny of people. That love in the specific, uh, that, that love that Peter captures in a broader umbrella is your posture towards, towards others. James captures in the specific aspect of turning them from their sins. Right? It was go- it's God who demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we're, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God demonstrates that aspect of desire for our eternal destiny through his sending Christ for us. True love has a, as a person's salvation in view and in pursuit. doesn't mean that we don't feed the hungry. It means that we don't speak out and save the unborn. We don't, that, that, that we don't stand up for the value and dignity of those who are near the end of their life. Christians have much to say and much to offer and much to speak in these scenarios. But the framework for that, the broader picture, is the eternal salvation of everyone and that Christ would be glorified in their lives. So all of these virtues, and these are, these are not, this is not an exhaustive list. You can go, we can go other places, we could spend a month on this, but you can go other places in Scripture, Galatians and, and Ephesians, you'll find so many other virtues that are listed, but they're all very, very common. These are just some that, that Peter highlights. And that these virtues are not optional, but they're intris- intrinsic to the true Christian. Right? Peter says next, he says, for the, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, it's not an optional thing. It's that they, they should be. They should be. So if these are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Christ. He's, he draws the positive picture of the virtues and then he draws the negative picture of a life lived without them or a lack of pursuit of them. What he's saying is, you know, it's possible to live within the Christian community, the, the community of faith, to come to church, to rub shoulders with genuine believers and display a dusting of Christian virtue. You know, a little bit of it here when I'm in church, a little bit of it here, you know, when I'm around other Christians. But actually to be lost. 
Peter has strong words to use here. He describes such a person as useless, unfruitful, and blind. That's not going to get you invited back to somebody's house, right? But those are strong words. So this person has tasted of the grace of God, but never come to faith. This person wants all the benefits of sanctification, but none of the actual obedience and sacrifice. They'll stand up and say, love being a Christian, you know, love Jesus can speak of that identity, but their life actually bears no genuine fruits. This is a warning. This is a warning. He says this person has forgotten. They've forgotten. And so he says it's necessary to remind one another. But he doesn't mean that this person has lost their salvation. As if God gave them this gift and said, okay, you protect it, you hang on to it, it's all you know, entirely up to you, figure this thing out on your own. If you get to the gates of heaven and you've lost it, too bad for you. Not as if they would have to hold on to it solely by their own efforts, and therefore by forgetting, they've now become spiritually blind and lost again. Look at what he says. He says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, his, his warning is don't forget. Don't become blind. Don't become short-sighted. He's speaking to Christians. That is a real danger. Don't sit there and say, you know, with, with this high view of God's sovereignty and election and say, well, that would never happen to me because Peter says, watch out. Pride goes before fall. But what does he say to combat that? He says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For by this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. He, Jesus, Peter puts the emphasis on the believers making sure that they are saved by examining God's effectual calling on their life. How do you know that you are saved? How do you know that God has called you and saved you? How do you know that he has given you faith? Examine the fruits in your life. That's what Peter says. If these fruits are occurring, then know God has saved you. And then he says, practice them. Practice them. Right? This is the compatible nature of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Right? I think I've used this example before. It's probably one of my favorites, like a rowboat. How does God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, man's will, how do they work? Here's the picture you see in Scripture. One or is God's sovereignty, the other or is, is, man, is man's responsibility. And they work together. And the Christian goes. What happens if you're theologically reading and you drop one of those oars? You ever been in a rowboat with one oar? You're going in a circle. And that's what happens. And here's what we find in Scripture. God's sovereignty. Be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and His choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, there's your responsibility. 
Those two go hand in hand. Peter lays that out as a fantastic summary statement. What does sanctification look like? Checking your identity in faith. Examining that. Yes, I'm saved. New heart, new affections, new desire that only God can give to me. Give him praise, give him glory. Now there's obedience. There's something I've got to do. And so I... I apply diligence in my faith to live in a way that's honoring to Him. That's sanctification. That's the hard work of growing in, in Christ-likeness. And Scripture shows that those two are compatible. doesn't explain all the, nits, the nitty-gritty outworkings of it. It just lays it out there. says, this is how it works. Peter says, if God has chosen you, then you will have a heart and a desire for these virtues. And their presence will be the evidence of your justification. Therefore, pursue them all the more diligently. Like I said, these are, this is sanctification in a nutshell. What does it look like? And Peter, having said this to the Christians... He turns and he looks at himself as, as the pastor, basically. And he says, therefore, because this is, this is the way that, that, this is your entrance into heaven. This is growing in Christ's likeness. This is what it looks like. He said, I'll be all the more ready to remind you of these things. That's the pastor's duty. That's why Alan and I get up here every Sunday it's not new stuff that we're bringing to the table. Everybody's at a different point in their Christian walk. You may hear something like, I've never heard that before. But I'll tell you, and I can speak for Alan on this too, we don't come up here with something new that we've come and pulled out of a box or that we've made up and they're like, oh, this is phenomenal. And we're not trying to copy off of somebody else, but when we read things and when we look at the scriptures, the more we realize is, this is the old, old story. This is the same drumbeat that God's been running through the church for centuries. And this is the admonishment, this is the encouragement, is to remind one another, to remind you. I heard one popular pastor on a, on a radio show once, he was being interviewed um, in, in a, on a, a secular station, um, and they were talking about, and I, I don't remember the details of it, but the the host was sort of chastising and slandering the 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 church's posture to as, as they put it sort of brainwash people and tell them what to do and the, and this pastor said well it's not my job to tell people how to live their lives and i was like so what are you doing i mean and i realized in that context you know autonomy everybody's you know does their own thing you know kindness and love means you know approving anything that you want you know whatever you want you be you all this kind of stuff but i read a different call in the scriptures right peter says remind them of their identity and encourage them to live that identity out that has a specific framework that we're called to admonish and encourage one another that way. Not just pastors, but all Christians. 
This is the same faithful responsibility and the duty of Christians to one another. Right? It's a significant part of our fellowship together, right? It's what we do when we gather for Bible studies. Is we remind one another. We share meals together. When we counsel one another through hard times. And we must be intentional about doing so. It's easy to live a life that looks like the rest of the world when we just get together and we fellowship. But we're called to speak the gospel to one another, to remind one another what it means to be a Christian. One of the chief aims of Christian community is to remind one another because we're so easily swayed by the lust of the world. Isn't this the purpose behind Peter's writings? Remind one another so that when the false teacher arises, you can point them out and get rid of them. So you're not swayed. So you're not carried away. So you don't drift. Remind one another. Because it's easy to take those virtues and twist them. Isn't it? In your moral excellence. Oh, well, that's just going and being one with nature. Right? The closer you are with nature, that's your moral excellence. In your knowledge, you're the supreme source of knowledge because, because you're the higher being in an evolved status. So pursue that knowledge at the expense of any of this idea of God. Self-control. That one's out the window, right? No explanation there. Pursuit of godliness? Yeah, you're going to be laughed at. Twisted idea of brotherly kindness and love. Right? So easy to walk out tomorrow wherever the Lord has you going and be swayed a different direction. So we must remind one another. We must remind one another. I told you this was Christianity 101, right? No new substance. Anything that you read in a Christian devotional, you read in the scriptures, it's going to be a consistent drumbeat. It may be new to you, but it is not new to God. It's not new to history. But we're to remind one another of our identity in Christ. And then to say, now apply diligence in your faith. If there's moral failure or there's Christian virtue that's failing and we're talking with one another, it's going to draw its root back to our identity in Christ. Any of you that's gone through the gospel fluency that we've, we've done before, this is the, that's, that's the gist of it, basically. Looking at fruits that are bad in our lives and where, why is this fruit bad or why is this not being cultivated? And we're drawing those back to a root heart issue that usually is, is, is a disconnect between who we are in Christ, who we are in Christ and who God is in our relationship together. Remind one another. So I'll close in a summary. That growth happens, how does growth happen? That was the first question I asked. How does growth happen? It happens by fostering our identity in Christ, growing in that true knowledge of who God is, who we are in relationship to him and an understanding about the world that he's created for his own glory. 
and then applying that identity. How, how does who I am in Christ affect what I do today? This particular situation. Applying that identity. And then as we're in community together, regularly reminding one another about our identity and our responsibilities in order to grow and keep from stumbling. That's the way we walk in perseverance to the end. That's what Peter admonishes and encourages his initial audience, and that's the message for us today. So let me close in prayer. My God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the gift of growth. Growth growth is hard. It's not easy. Even my own kids, they're like, I just want to be a kid. I'm like, I know, me too. I know. Growing up is hard. Growing up as Christians is hard too because it's so easy to just get comfortable. To be like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress and just fall asleep in the comfortable arbor of a local church and doing some ministry here and there and being comfortable and safe and a place that's meant just for the refreshment of weary saints was never meant to be an abiding home. So Father, grant us grace to grow. When times of suffering and persecution come as they are, Strengthen your church. Strengthen this church, Father. May we not be swayed by lesser gospels that are no gospels at all. Father, may we think deeply about our identity in Christ and then may we be faithful to live that out. That others might see Jesus and that you might, in your the power of your Holy Spirit, Give us strength to share the gospel with others, to speak the gospel to others. That they might know the same hope that we have. That we might have fellowship with them in the same way that we have fellowship with one another. That you would be glorified in bringing more sheep into the fold of the great shepherd. So Father, would you challenge us to grow? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I give you our benediction from Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful afternoon.